Well, hey, Collective, good morning. Uh, I also want to just say welcome to those of you that are visitors with us today. Uh, maybe somebody sent you a link. We're really excited to have you here. There has been a new little practice that all of us have developed over the past, I mean, week in particular for me that at least I've begun to notice it. And it is the amount of charts and graphs and statistics that uh, I've been reading and ingesting and, and chewing on and thinking about over the past week. Uh, we have been looking at uh, the infection rate in our world, the infection rate in the city of Los Angeles. We've been looking at infection versus the mortality rate in hospitalizations and ages. And 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 we're just I'm, I'm inundated with the statistics as these are beginning to roll out. There's some scary stuff in there. But at the same time, there's also some statistics, some charts that are actually quite hopeful as we're beginning to see some of the implications of what our social distancing is doing. Again, more charts and graphs of flattening the curve. We've been looking at some of these that are scary and some of these that are hopeful. But I want to bring your attention to one more graph that made some waves this week that maybe you didn't see. It came from Jeanette Benson. Uh, she comes from the University of Copenhagen, where she researched and then this past week published what she referred to as a global skyrocketing, not in infection cases, but a global skyrocketing in interest in prayer. She compiled global web searches for prayer, and what she's found is a causation between web searches, Google searches in prayer, and the infection rate. With every 80,000, it doubles in the amount of people searching for prayer. And this, this amount of interest in prayer is at its highest since the year uh, 2004, as far back as Google's data goes. So since 2004, more people have an interest in prayer. Than, than we've been able to count, at least since we've got Google around. At the end of her paper, she writes this, we humans have a tendency to use religion to cope with crisis. COVID-19 has proven no exception. The rise in prayer intensity supersedes what the world has seen for years. The COVID-19 is still far from its peak and it only just reached the developing world. Further, more, as more and more people lose their loved ones, the demand for religion is likely to rise. It is therefore highly likely that the rise in prayer intensity will continue. So what she has seen, Google search superseding the amount of people that are searching and interested in prayer. And so for everyone that's gathered here today, underneath prayer, the deeper search is one of trust and faith. And you could say spirituality, religion, whatever language we want to use, it is a turning and looking for God. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the work that she's put in here. It's a reminder of what's going on in this moment. But I have one qualm with that final paragraph where what she wrote was that we humans have a tendency to use religion to cope with crisis. And so I see what she's saying. My, my pushback, and obviously this is you know, as a pastor, as a Christian, is not that we have a tendency to use religion to cope with crisis, but rather that crisis strips us of all of our other coping tendencies. See, there's a difference there. With We've run out of other things to go to as opposed to we, that whenever things happen, we immediately go to religion. The reality is when at the end of our rope, the terror of what may or may not be there to catch us becomes our search, whether on our phones or in our souls. And, and so the reality is, is that we are in a moment that we have had all of our other coping tendencies stripped, whether that was um, it's something as simple as a coping tendency as eating out, 
or a coping tendency as, as a codependent friendship and relationship, the, co- the coping mechanisms of your career, whatever it might be, all of those have been stripped away. And health, you know, you can, we have healthy people that are being infected. There is, all the coping tendencies are gone. And so now we're turning to prayer. And so for those of you that are part of Collective, you are back, you're here, logged in or whatever, for another week because you have found that this is not a coping tendency, but it is the great, not thing, but person who is there to catch us when all of these other coping tendencies fall apart. And maybe for those of you that don't identify as a Christian, this is what's brought you here for this first week or maybe another week of joining us, is your finding that all of the coping tendencies aren't working. And it's brought you here today. And so there's good news uh, for each and every one of us that there actually is someone there to catch us. And that's the sort of story we're looking at today. And so what that means is uh, what we've been at is uh, three weeks, or this is our third week, in uh, a teaching series that we've been calling Take Heart. And we've been calling it Take Heart because we're looking at stories where Jesus told people to take heart, specifically fearful, worried people, anxious people to take heart. Now, this week, we're going to do something a little bit differently, where we're going to be jumping from when Jesus says take heart to someone to asking the question, why does Jesus say take heart to people? Or where does Jesus get this idea? He says it so often in the Gospels that it seems like he's quoting something. He's trying to grab people's attention. There's an inside joke that he's in on. In the same way that if I were to say, you know, I am your father or something like that, um, or the idea of a red pill or a blue pill, um, that these, these, these quotes bring something to mind for you. And I, it seems to me, and at least what we're going to see today, I think it's pretty evident that Jesus is trying to do something with those people when he says take heart. Now, what, so what is Jesus referring to? I, I quit burying the lead, Ryan. Uh, this answer takes us all the way back to the story of Israel's exodus from slavery to Egypt. We're going to be in Exodus 14. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. It takes us all the way back to that Exodus story is where Jesus gets take heart. That Exodus story, uh, leading Egyptologist Jan Asman refers to it, to the Exodus story, as the most grandiose and influential story ever told, the Exodus story. I mean, this has been a story repurposed by people throughout all time. Most recently in, in the American memory, it has been that of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr., they repurposed and took on the Exodus story as a way of seeing the story the moment they were going into It's such an influential story that's not just been used for religious or social justice causes, but even for entertainment. 1923, we had the Ten Commandments silent film, followed up a few decades later with Charles uh, Heston and him as Moses. We had the Millennials here. We had the Prince of Egypt movie from uh, DreamWorks. And then just recently, uh, recently, 2014 is not (laughs) super recent, six years ago, Ridley Scott did the Exodus Gods and Kings movie with Christian Bale and company. Um, and so if you get bored this week, I just added some more movies for your queue. You're welcome. Um, these are all different retellings of the story, obviously, some of them having some historical leniency, um, but still good retellings nonetheless. This story has made waves throughout history. It has been a way for people to see their own situation for justice, but also it's been a story that has um, captured our, uh, our, our, our imaginations for entertainment as well. And maybe you're someone who thinks, okay, influential but fanciful story. Um, Joshua Berman, little podcast, just um, put those in your ears this week and let him show you why there's a greater case for the Exodus than maybe you and I might think. Now, all of that to say, 
this story, we, we cannot overstate how influential this story is in our world, but also we cannot overstate how influential this story was for the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, the Exodus story was the central story of their identity. Even this week, as Jews continue to observe Passover, when they retell the story of the Exodus, of the Passover story and going through the Red Sea, being led from slavery to Egypt to Canaan, the promised land, they will use the pronoun we and not they. Why? Because it is their story as much as it is, you know, grandma and grandpa's way back then. And this is true not just for modern Jews, but this was true for Jesus. For our Jesus, our Jewish Messiah, he was saturated and shaped by the Jewish scriptures. Even more than that, Jesus saw himself not just as shaped by them, but as the fulfillment of them. And so it's not surprising to me that when we have Jesus walking around in his gospels and he's looking to people who are afraid and fearful and they don't know which way to go, that we find him saying, take heart which is exactly what Moses says at the middle of chapter 14 today to the Israelites before passing through the Red Sea. Jesus, and we have this scene not only in the rest of the New Testament, but by Jesus himself, he sees himself as a new Moses leading a new exodus with a new salvation, not just from Egypt, but from death and sin and the devil or Satan, spiritual powers and systemic injustice and individual sin. Jesus is, is coming to save the world. It's a new exodus. And he sees himself as a new Moses, and he wants you to see him as a new Moses, and specifically the, the Jewish people of his day. And so he tells them regularly, take heart. Luke, I am your father. It fires the synapses, and they see Moses for a moment, and then Jesus is there in the shadow, as it were. Or maybe you could say that uh, the, the shadow cast by Moses is the one that Jesus was actually the one casting the shadow. <laughs> Whatever language you want to use. This is what's going on here. Now, today as we study the Exodus in the Red Sea, this is what we're seeing. Moses leading the Israelites through death and chaos into life, and also how Jesus is doing that for you and me as well. And we did this intentionally on Palm Sunday, on Holy Week, where we find generations and generations of Christians since that first Easter have been retelling and remembering this story as a way to meditate on what happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, on Good Friday being crucified, the Last Supper on Easter Sunday next week, where we remember and celebrate his resurrection. They saw all of that as anticipated in the Exodus of Israel. And so that's why we're looking at it today. We're kicking off Holy Week like millions of Christians, billions of Christians have done over the past 2,000 years by remembering the Exodus story. So we're going to jump into the text, but before I do, roadmap like I normally do for where we're going today. And the way that we're going to do this is there's a hundred ways that you can read this story and pull out different things. Today, I just want to look at one little way of doing it is by following the author's use of sight and seeing of eye, where eyes go in this story as the key and roadmap for how we're going to read this today. So what you'll look at in chapter um, 14, verse 5 through 12, where we're going to kick off by reading, is that our focus determines our fear. Focus determines fear. In verses 13 through 14, we're going to look at faith as augmented reality. What in the world? We'll get there. And then in 15 through 31, we're going to so see how salvation is when faith becomes sight. So you can already see we've got all of this vision language, and that's what we're going to be following. So keep your eye out for eyes and for looking, and you'll be able to see how the text flows together in a specific way. 
let's get into it. Uh, chapter 14, verse 5 through 9. I'm going to read this, and, um, and then we'll get to 10 and 12 in a second. But let's start with verses 5 through 9. When the king of Egypt, that is Pharaoh, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people of Israel. And they said, what is this that we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot. He took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses, all the king's horses, all the king's men, and the chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtakes them and camp by the sea at Pihahiroth at Baal Zephon. So as a recount, we're in chapter 14. Israel, 500, 400 years in Egypt, they've spent, ended up as slaves. That Egypt, with Israel here around them, that out of, um, out of, quite simply, out of their racism, out of their fear of these immigrants, have put them into cages, as it were. They have made them their slaves. And even more than that, their fear of losing the national identity of Egypt to these Jews has led to them to begin committing genocide, killing the youngest, their, their sons, by throwing them into the Nile River, allowing them to be the food for crocodiles or to drown, as it were. Um, this is where Israel was. But God hears this. He raises up Moses uh, to lead them out from this. You can go back and read. We've got the 10 plagues that you know about, each one getting worse, and with each one a chance for Egypt and for Pharaoh to repent, to let Israel go, to see the error and the evil of their ways. But it doesn't happen. In fact, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart. His heart is hardened. And then there's the final Passover where there's this agent of death that comes through the land and takes the firstborn um, and kills them. It is a reversal on what Egypt has done to the firstborn. But for Egypt, the blood of the Passover lamb over their door frames, that they are protected, they are covered in this moment. Um, so all of this goes up. Pharaoh is livid. He finally sends them away. But Pharaoh realizes the economic cost a few days later. This empire is built on the back of those slaves. Our economy is going to fall apart. So he mounts up all the king's horses, all the king's men to bring them back. So verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. There it is. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this to us and bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. So what happens? Israel sees the Egyptians. Their focus moves to the army approaching and they begin to greatly fear. Their focus determines their fear. Their uncertainty now in this moment breeds anxiety. And there are three responses or coping techniques displayed in Israel and in this cultural moment. First is sarcasm. <laughs> what they say by saying, "Are there? Is there because there's no graves in Egypt? Um, we read over that. <laughs> Egypt was known for being a death-obsessed religious system. They had fields and fields of graves. We know so much about Egypt because we're able to go back and look at their graves. The pyramids, largest wonder in the world, are giant graves. 
And so the Jews made them. I mean, this is the equivalent of them saying, is it because there's no graves you brought us out here to die? Is It's like an ancient meme. It is a sarcastic, like, nope, sorry, no graves. We better head back. The first technique is one of trying of sarcasm to distance yourself from what you're afraid of. The next is blaming. Notice that as they go through this, they said to Moses, you did this to us. They're looking for someone to blame in this moment. They have forgotten that God is literally with them in this pillar of fire, a pillar of this cloud that is literally standing right next to them. And they're looking at Moses as if this is his fault. Moses becomes the scapegoat. Finally, it turns to a coping technique, which of it's just hopelessness. It would have better, been better for us to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the desert. They are at a place of panic and now depression and numbness brought out hopelessness. The reality is, is that we're like uh, Israel, that our focus determines our fear and that we could take on three of these. I mean, these are simply examples, but these coping techniques as well. We turn to sarcasm and humor as a way to distance ourselves. And so we go and go and go until the memes run out. We can blame. We're looking for uh, racism to pin this on or national enemies to pin this on. We look for conspiracy theories as modes of shifting the blame. And then finally, for many of us, we just find ourselves in a state of hopelessness and panic. The reality is, as Benson has found, crisis strips us of our coping tendencies. And so what do they then do? The fourth reaction after sarcasm, racism, or blame and hopelessness fall apart, it turns towards them crying out to the Lord. As Corrie ten Boom put it, who herself was leading a sort of mini exodus during the Holocaust of helping uh, those Jews running from Nazi Germany, she put it this way, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. When the memes run dry, when you realize the stupidity of your conspiracy theories or the silliness of your racism, or you just get to that place of hopelessness, when you find out Jesus is all that you need, when he's all that you have. And what this gets us down to is all we have left to do is to cry out to the Lord, the wilderness prayer of Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. 2,000 years ago, it's what the Jews were saying as Jesus came into Jerusalem, underneath the boot of Rome, save us, we pray. It is what the Jews were crying out as they were fleeing from Israel or underneath Nazi Germany. It is what here within the States, we've had people crying out to God in the midst of um, slavery and racism and civil injustice. It is now what we find around the world, all of us praying underneath COVID-19, save us, we pray. It is what we'll be doing tonight as a part of our prayer night, save us, we pray. And so for those of us who are focused, spurred on by fear, now turns back to God for the first time after the memes have run dry, the silliness, whatever it might be, what is God's answer to us? Verses 13 and 14, where we now begin to think about not just the focus of fear, but faith is augmented reality. Verse 13 and 14, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent or be still. It can be translated. So Moses here, he's a really good leader. He doesn't chastise the people of their sarcasm. He doesn't defend himself and blame shift or join them in their hopelessness. Moses, with his focus already on the God who is with them, calls for them to, uh, in our translation, it is fear not. Translated from the Hebrew, 
uh, it is he, uh, fear not. Now, Bible nerd thing for a moment is our Old Testaments are translated from the Hebrew. Uh, what the common uh, translation that was used in Jesus's day was not the Hebrew, but the Greek translation, uh, what was referred to as the Greek um, Hebrew scriptures or the Septuagint even. Um, and so all of this is, okay, wait a minute, there's two Old Testaments. We have a whole list of different translations. These are different ways of re-saying and just retelling the same story using language for specific people. As more and more of the people of Jesus's day were primary speaking Greek and not Hebrew, they made a translation that was for them in the same way that we're not reading this in Hebrew, we're reading it in English right now. So Jesus, uh, as, as belonging to the day that he is in, his primary translation would have been the Greek the Greek Old Testament, and the way that the Greek Old Testament translates that fear not command is tharseo. It is that Greek word we've been looking at, take heart. Jesus's primary translation that he knows and all of his people know is when Moses calls the people in the midst of their fear that God is with them, he says, take heart or fear not. And so this is what it comes from. My understanding is Jesus's take heart statements are specifically him quoting from and trying to get people's imagination back to seeing him as a new Moses leading a new Exodus, calling for a firmness of purpose for God's people, specifically in the face of danger or trial. And he says this take heart in two different ways. He tells them to stand firm. So take heart, do not fear and stand firm, a way of saying don't run off and abandon so stand firm, take heart, and be still or be silent. That is, don't run around in anxiety. So to take heart is don't run off and abandon God and don't run around in anxiety. But take heart and what? See, see the salvation of the Lord. Set your focus on, as it were, not what's coming in this moment, but the salvation of the Lord. Where you now see death, be prepared to see salvation. Where you now see Egypt rushing over the hill at you, see a timer ticking above their heads, counting them down. Moses does not say here, don't worry. What he does is he calls Israel to an augmented reality of faith. Now, the thing is, is that you and I most likely know of or have used an augmented reality app on you know, our smartphones or iPads or whatever. And so this week, the reason why I'm thinking about this, like why augmented reality this week? Here's what happened. Um, we were getting ready for bed. I was taking the, the trash out. And so uh, when I came outside, there was this bright light, like just underneath the moon, but really, really bright and um, brighter. And part of this is like, we can see like all the smog's gone. We can see the stars again here in LA. But um, I brought Erin out and we're going back and forth. She's like convinced it's a planet. I'm like, it's it's not moving, so it's not a plane. But And so it's also probably not a satellite. I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's a, 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 a it's too bright to be a star. And I don't think it's a planet. And so I download on my phone the, the Skywalk app really quick, right? And I give it my location. I give it, you know, this. And what I'm able to do in this moment is this phone now overlays. So through the camera, I'm seeing, you know, my tree and my yard. But when I look up at the stars, it's beginning to give little names to what I'm looking at. I can see that's a satellite. I can see, okay, that's not showing up. That must be a plane. And then I look closer. Oh yeah, it's totally a plane. There's the moon, right? I can even see constellation shapes. But when I come down over the thing that we've been talking about, the thing that had been the subject of all this confusion and even Aaron being like, no, it's totally a planet. Me being like, what are you talking about? I leave it out and sure enough, bing, oh, there it is. Oh, it's Venus. It's Venus. 
what this was was an augmented reality, an overlay of my present situation that allowed me to clear up some confusion based off some information that I was lacking, right? I mean, there's like Ikea and different furniture apps where you can sit in your living room and pull it up and you can see what a chair would look like, you know, in your the corner of your living room or whatever. Instead of like going and buying it, you can in that moment see how it would, would fit and kind of vibe with the rest of the furniture in your house. Now, this is the thing. Something like an augmented reality requires trust or faith in the pres- the overlay that's being given through the iPad or the app or smart glasses or whatever. Whether that's a faith in the astronomers behind the app or in Ikea, that that, that chair that they're showing me actually exists, that I'm not getting my hopes up for nothing, or that the that when they tell me that's Venus, that's actually Venus. It requires that the app is made with the right information and that I use it and that I trust it in order for it to work. Now, I, I, all of this is silly. I, I get it. I'm just trying to help you under, us understand, and this has been helpful for me, what Moses is doing in this moment. Moses is not saying, don't worry about it. Moses is not in the panic and the sarcasm. And he doesn't say, don't even look at them. He does say, where you see the Egyptians, you'll never see them again. So he almost encourages them to keep their eyes on the Egyptians, but he wants them to see them through this augmented reality, which is that God's going to do something. And for Moses, that take heart and see the augmented reality of faith, that overlay on their situation is based on the past faithfulness of God and the future promises of God. Here's what he knows. God has been faithful to Israel all through this point. We've got a cloud of fire by night and a cloud of a pillar of cloud by day to lead us. We've had 10 plagues. I met with God at a burning bush. He has been faithful to Joseph and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's been faithful to our people. He's going to continue being faithful to us. And this is how we know it. And he knows that God has promised, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And so for him, he's giving our people this present situation based on the past faithfulness of God and the future promises in this break between augmented reality in order to see it. I hope this is helping. Jesus does the exact same thing for you and I. He calls for us to take heart and see the salvation of the Lord as an overlay of our situation that similarly is based on the past faithfulness of God in what? In the resurrection of Jesus in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in looking back at these stories, in looking back at the stories and lives of other saints and other Christians and other our own life, God has been faithful to us through all of this time and specifically in the resurrection as the thing that undergirds it all. And so I've been given a promise of Jesus' continued faithfulness to me and the resurrection for myself at his return when he will make all things right. And so now what that allows me to do, when I have these two things put together, it becomes an overlay for coronavirus, for injustice, for plagues, for whatever you're going through, for pain, for death, my death itself. I have an overlay based on how faithful he's been in the past and his promises of the future. And that's what allows me to see this moment with this different overlay that other people may not have. One example of um, the past from 700 years ago, and then we'll move on. There's a lady named Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich, incredible, incredible story. Um, she lived uh, during the time of the Black Death, which killed an estimate of 30 to 60% of Europe. Took them over 150 years to recover, all of Europe to recover from what Black Death, this um, plague left in its wake. 
She lived through that. Not only that, but in the economic fallout and everything that had fallen apart, there were riots and revolts in the streets regularly. And she was, as a Christian, a part of a church that was increasingly fragmented and falling apart. All this came together for her, where at age 30, she went into isolation, self-quarantine, as it were, uh, along with her cat. (laughs) She's like the original cat lady. It was just her and her cat. Um, And she'd be there most of the time. And her kind of main task was she was kind of ordained by the church to do this, was prayer, giving counsel to people, and making clothes for the poor. But what she was most known for was the other thing that she was tasked with doing, was writing was writing. Her most popular writing was Revelations of Divine Love. It is the oldest surviving English writing penned by a woman. Julian of Norwich, the oldest writing, came in the midst of a big plague as a woman was locked up in a small room with her cat. Um, I just love it, man. Like, this is such a good, such a good example. One of the, I mean, history was made here. Now, why am I bringing this out? Okay, one of the things about this book is towards the end of her Look, she writes this, this meditation of, and it's, and she writes it as, as Jesus is, is saying it to her and she's receiving it, this, that um, the quote is, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be exceedingly well. And this became, this is like one of the quotes that she's known for, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be exceedingly well. Now, she writes this in the midst of absolute isolation while the world is literally falling apart. And she's able to say, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is what I mean when I'm talking about an augmented reality of the situation. I do not think that she, she had to go into isolation because of everything that was going on. She's not delusional to the suffering and pain of the world, but she has a way of seeing the situation that is predicated on, well, in the leading pages of the whole book, the past faithfulness and love of God and his future promises that all will be made well. And that allowed her to see her current situation in light of that, where she was able to be um, this incredible example for us. She is an example much like Moses. Uh, Mark Sayers writes in his book, Reappearing Church, we see in both scripture, like Moses, and in the history of the church, like Julian of Norwich, God has allowed men and women to enter into extreme environments, to be tested to their absolute limits, to face isolation and opposition. But through this process, these disciples become models of how to follow God faithfully and flourish in challenging environments. And so why Moses and Julian, one of the reasons that we're that focusing on them does for us is that it reminds you and I that we are not alone in this moment. We are invited to draw from Moses and Julian's example of taking heart and seeing their our situation through the lens of God's past faithfulness in the work of Jesus and in our own lives and his future promises to us, resurrection and return. And all of this is for us while we're in the middle place. But this augmented reality becomes reality itself at some point. It's what the Bible refers to as salvation. And that's exactly what happens in the case of the Exodus story. Look at me in verse 14, or chapter 14, 15 through 18. <clears throat> so after Moses gives this to the people, he says, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after the people of Israel. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So there's this tension of faith that happens here where we find Moses and God through him genuinely telling Israel to take heart, to be still as it were, and to stand firm, but also to move forward, to go forward as he puts it. That there is a tension of faith that is both trusting God and getting to work, of not just admiring the augmented reality of God's past faithfulness and future promises, oh, that's so nice, but also living as though it were true here and now to go forward as it were. Let's keep going though in verse 21 through 23. Then God stretched out his hand over the sea, or Moses stretched out his hand over the sea with a staff and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And then he continues in verse 24 through 25, talking about how this pillar um, was protecting them in the midst. Then verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, now stretch out your hand over the sea again, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. And the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. And not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall on their right hand and on their left. And so Moses stretches out his hands, holding the staff, this symbol of God's presence throughout the book of Exodus so far, as they walk through the midst of the waters that minutes ago would have been their grave. It's no wonder that throughout the Jewish scriptures that the waters become a metaphorical language to talk about death, to take about chaos, to talk about all that humans cannot uh, control or tame. It's no wonder that the prophet Ezekiel himself talks about, he, he uses the imagery of the Red Sea to talk about a plague that is sweeping the lands. Interesting. To talk about a pandemic, he uses Red Sea language. And here's the thing, for Egypt, the punishment fits the crime. These same people that called for and they themselves threw these baby boys into the Nile River are picked up by God, as it were, and thrown into the Red Sea. The punishment fits the crime. That God is the one who works justice, not just in delivering people, but in dealing with those who commit evil against the innocent. But in verse 30, let's continue. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day, right? It's an understatement. The Lord, there was salvation for Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel, here it is one more time, saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared, that is revered or respected the Lord. And they believed in him and in his servant Moses. So here it is. Salvation is when faith becomes Sight, when the overlay, when the augmented becomes reality itself, when the future promises of God now come into the present tense, the Egyptians that God said, you will see no more, they see washed up on the seashore. Wow, that was a tongue twister. I'm surprised I got through that. Um, Jesus, 
as the greater Moses here, oh, if there's anything here to connect it to Palm Sunday, it is why has Exodus been talked about over and over again when it comes to Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus sees himself as a greater Moses, a greater servant, a greater one that has been sent by God to bring a greater Exodus, not from slavery to Egypt, but from a different kind of slavery. As Moses stretched his hands out with a wooden staff to rip apart almost, as it were, the waters of death and to drown the evil Egyptians, Jesus stretches his hands on not a wooden staff, but his wooden cross, allowing death to rip apart, to break, as Jesus says, his body. That as he is ripped apart, as he is killed, he drowns in his resurrection, not just the Egyptians, but evil and death itself. Easter is a celebration as we move in the next week. The resurrection was the declaration of the victory of God. It was like we see in Exodus 14, the display of the great power of our Lord. That there is a new Exodus that is happening. And here's the reality though. For all who believe in Jesus, we are both recipients of the waters being broken. Salvation has happened, and yet it still is happening and is yet to happen. We are currently walking through the chaos waters. But because of Jesus' past resurrection and his future return, we can walk by faith, whether it's through the divided Red Sea, pandemics, suffering, confusion, fear, even death itself, because even death is simply the landscape on the right hand to the left when we have a God who, because of his resurrection, is victorious over death and can save us even from that. And that's the hope of the resurrection. And so in all of this, what's the response of those who have the salvation of the Lord? Exodus 15, let's start the next chapter, just for a second. Then Moses and the people of Israel do what? They sing this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, there it is, the past faithfulness, and I will exalt him. And then jump down to the very end of verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. When faith becomes sight, when salvation is realized, God's people sing. Chris Wright, in his incredible book, The Mission of God, says, The permanent memorial to the Exodus story is not some old stone sunk in the sands of Mount Sinai to commemorate the victory of Israel over Egypt. No. The permanent memorial is the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, and the song of all Israel, celebrating the victory of the Lord over the human and divine forces of oppression and injustice and the proclaiming of his universal reign in the unlimited future. Truly, the Lord is enthroned not on pillars of stone, but the praises of his people. It was true for Israel in Exodus, and it will be true for us. The last book of the Bible. Revelation, John sees a picture of Jesus' future return, a picture of those promises that then give us an overlay for this present moment. And over and over again, John sees God's people 
singing a new song to the Lord. When faith becomes sight, when augmented reality becomes reality itself, God's people sing for joy. Since the Exodus story, God's people with anticipation and expectation for the future work of God have continued singing together as choir practice for eternity by singing between the waters, whether pandemic, whether the actual waters, whether death itself. They have sung hymns as practice for the new heavens and new earth, practice for the future. As we take heart, and that all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Because we see reality through the lens of God's past faithfulness in the resurrection of Jesus and our own lives, and we look with anticipation for his future salvation, ultimately in his return and the union of heaven and earth when death is finally killed itself and life reigns in Jesus' rule. That this is what we await. 